You're listening to E-Commerce Marketing School presented by Privy. And a big thank you to our co-sponsors of the show, Suna and Hashtag Paid. And now a quick shout out to a giant pain in the butt for e-com stores everywhere, getting the right photos and videos to sell your products. Here's the truth. Not a single transaction happens on the internet that doesn't involve a visual. If you're in e-commerce, you need professional photos. That's Suna. They're the virtual content studio. Join over 10,000 merchants who get high quality creative by simply shipping their product, joining their shoot online and paying for the photos they need as they go. Oh. And those photos, they're only $39 each. Your pain point is about to be your secret weapon. Get started today at Suna.co. That's S-O-O-N-A dot co. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. I'm here with Stephen Borelli, founder and CEO of Cuts. Hopefully you've heard of Cuts. I've followed the brand for a long time. It's an incredible business. Steven's won awards like EY's e- Entrepreneur of the Year, which I just saw. And, you know, he hasn't done a ton of podcasts. So I, I went to his fan base and I got a ton of collection of questions that everyone wanted to know about founding and scaling cuts. So Steven, thank you for the time. I'm pumped to chat with you today. Yeah, pumped to be here. Uh yeah, it was awesome to see the the Twitter polls of people, you know, genuinely excited about us. Like you mentioned, I uh, don't do a ton of podcasts, so I'm excited to jump on today and share our story. Yeah, flattered, flattered to have you. So let's start at the top. I mean, I think most people are familiar with cuts that are listening. If not, we'll link in the show notes. So definitely check them out. But give us a sense, like, what is cuts? And what type of company are you building? Cuts uh, is the world's first work leisure business. And we, our community is people who operate in the sport of business. And we started back in 2017 and just focused on one thing. And we wanted to do one thing really great, which was t-shirts. And then from there, we scaled into a full uh, lineup of men's clothing and now women's clothing in the work leisure category. And so when you say work leisure, that means like you want people wearing really nice form-fitting t-shirts as part of business. Yeah, what we saw back in 2016, it actually was a personal experience of mine. I was working at an advertising agency and my boss kicked me out of the meeting and says, hey, you know, you're not professional enough for the work attire. We were presenting Dasani, uh, a digital strategy at at the time. And I was wearing an athletic shirt, but nice jeans and nice pairs of shoes. And everyone in the office wore a t-shirt into work. And what I realized in that moment was basics were too like wrinkly and not formal enough, but then athletic shirts were also too informal. But what I liked about wearing an athletic shirt was that it moved with you and it, and it was able to feel good all day. Um, you know, I was always in and out of coffee shops. I was the lowest guy in the totem pole. I was in photo shoots and I needed a shirt that was athletic, but not geared to to the athletic settings, but geared towards the office. And so that's where uh, the idea of Cuts was really born was from just a problem I had where I wanted to look my best, but also feel comfortable. And that's where the Cuts came about. Amazing. So that's six years ago, it sounds like, when you first had the genesis for the idea. And so did you like niche down and say, hey, I want to hit men that are 20 to 30 years old or something like that? Or or how did you think about it? Because the idea of like work leisure, starting with t-shirts at the time, even still was pretty competitive with incumbents. 
Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, uh, I, it sounds like I have all the answers now, and I kind of I wish I was that strategic when I started it. But originally, it was just, hey, let's create an idea that we could do with our physically two hands. So, you know, I didn't know e-commerce, I didn't know how to uh, make a garment, but I was able to. I figured we've picked one item, and for four years, we just did T-shirts, and so. At that moment, we just wanted to create a product for people in my network and my friends of friends, and we really just started there. Love that. It really wasn't until around 2019 that we realized how big the category that we kind of stumbled upon could be. And then really in 2020, when work from home started, that just exploded our business and allowed us uh, to be really the category leaders in that uh, new category called Work Leisure. I'm a huge fan. I, I feel like I've seen your video-based ads and creative mm-hmm. and a lot of the, I don't know if it's influencer work or if these people just love the product, but a lot of celebrities and athletes wearing cuts. And I was hoping that my order would show up today, but it, it's showing up oh, tomorrow. No. So I'm excited to, uh, to, to try it on and, and see yeah. how it goes. But can totally relate. Yeah. Working from home. I was joking with my wife. I don't think I've put on anything other than a t-shirt probably in, in a few years now, which is crazy, but this is just where we are. So, uh, it's good to hear the story. So you're bootstrapped, right? Yep. Haven't raised a, a penny of outside capital. I feel like that's coming back into the limelight. There's so much happening in commerce right now mm-hmm. or D to C CPG, you know, whatever industry, depending on who you're listening, was that a decision or was that just like, that was the only way? So I lived in San Diego. I graduated from San Diego State and then I moved home to start the business. And I was living in Wenatchee, Washington at the time, kind of shelled from the investing world and stuff like that. I had a buddy that was starting an e-commerce company that was selling watches at the time. And so I kind of was able to learn from him, but I more or less was uh, hidden from even thinking that outside funding was possible. And so I just focused on, you know, for us to be successful at that moment, we had to, every shirt we had to make a profit on. And uh, so we really focused on those early days of just great unit economics. Like, I think the one advantage Cuts had is we knew that we weren't going to be able to sell a $24 shirt and be profitable because of our high CAC. Like we tested it and it didn't work. So we were able to build the brand around a more luxurious brand feel and look, and then also on product quality to be able to, to be able to sell products online. So I think the early on, like from an origin, the one thing you can't get wrong is having the right unit economics, because if you get that wrong, then you're one, either going to have to change the brand or two, you're just not going to survive. So I think the unit economics for us early on were one of the reasons we were able to be successful. Yeah. And so you guys consider yourself premium product in terms of like materials and brand and all that. And so the price- We call it affordable luxury. Affordable luxury. I love that. Nice. Once you found the economics though, was there ever a point where you said, hey, we've figured out how to get customers. We're acquiring them profitably. Should we pour some fuel into the fire? Anything like that in terms of fundraising? Or once you were in the rhythm and the culture's there around bootstrapping, you're like, no, we just got to keep going. We got to keep going. We have what we need. I think the sexy answer is no, we knew all along we would not need money, but it was really kind of a, we did a throughout the the way try. After our, our first couple of months, we did like 180K. I, I was just going to say, you did try to raise money and failed? After, you know, we did the Kickstarter in the first couple of months, we did around 180K. And we were like, oh, wow, we got something here. And I, call, I didn't know who to call. So I called my professor. I was like, 
hey, we keep selling out of inventory every month. Is can you? I'll give you thirty percent of the company for like a hundred grand or something like that. Like I forget the exact number, but it was enormous amount of the company for in reality not that much money. But at the time, like being a young twenty-five-year-old kid, I thought it was a lot of money. And he rejected it because we couldn't get it right on terms. And so then we kind of just put our head down and we got Shopify Capital. I took out two credit cards that were uh, 20K, 0% for 12 months. And so did Carter, our CFO. And we just were able to scrap together 40 to 80K at a time. And we kept doubling that. And I don't recommend that to anyone. Don't take credit cards out for business because you could get in a ton of, like, we were very lucky to have low CPMs and just the timing of when we started. Nowadays, I, I think you would lose much, too much money and you wouldn't be able to pay it back. But we we kind of just bet on ourselves and not necessarily out of like wanting to, just out of the only way that was available to us. And so, but I always think like that 30% now for like, valuations would be worth 40, 50 million bucks. So if we would have just took the easy way out within a month, I would have been like, that was the worst decision. And and maybe we wouldn't have been where we are because it would have been such a bad use of our equity that it really, really would have hurt us. So, and throughout our time, there's always been times we've thought about it, but for the most part, after that one lesson where we almost made a tragic mistake it taught me like hey like whenever you really think you need it take one more step and then it's all we've always found a rhythm shortly after that's amazing advice yeah i mean we were venture backed before we we got acquired by attentive and i i remember a how hard it was to fundraise b how time consuming it was mm-hmm. i think about over my 10-year journey with privy if i had you know, not done that and spent all of that same amount of time just developing customers and working on the product and all that, like, would we have landed in the same spot, a better spot? Like, who knows, you know, and and no regrets. But I think the one thing I've learned is like, when something that feels bad happening, like that guy saying no to you on the, the first investment pitch, it can be a blessing in disguise. So I love the idea of like taking the next step forward and seeing. I I always say the best things are often the things that don't happen. And it's been so true in Cuts is a a similar situation happened with the Movement Watches founder. He's one of my best friends now, but we had just finished our like two to $4 million year. And I said, hey, I think we can get to... 10 million sales. And then he just didn't believe in that you could sell t-shirts online at the time. Cause he was like, it's only going to work for one size fits all. He's like, returns are going to be a nightwear and all this. And he said, no, that year, not only we did way more than 10, we doubled that essentially even more than doubled it. And I was sitting at his house a year later and I was like, guess how much we did. And I kind of made sure I didn't tell him all year. I just showed him our Shopify account and he was just scratching his head. And I said, you know, yesterday's price is not today's price. And we're not looking and so it was kind of like a, a good little jab at him and <laughs> i love that that's awesome so on the theme of like bootstrapping there was a question came in that i thought was interesting on twitter because you you were just talking about how you were scaling up you had a couple big like sounds like still growing really quickly what do you do for inventory now in financing inventory to stay ahead of demand are you doing any like debt financing or anything like that shopify capital so we we were probably I think I did a case study for Shopify. I think we were the most rapidest, most rapidest, is that a word? Most rapid uh Shopify capital in the beginning. Okay, okay. We went from like two grand to like two million in like 
a year and a half or something. So Shopify Capital was big. It's just expensive, but it's so easy that I still recommend it, even though you're kind of getting just crushed on interest rates. Then we turned that into Circle Up, which is another uh, great lending. Uh, We used Brex at a time. We kind of used everything that would give us money. One thing I always recommend is the financiers always say they want to be the exclusive financer and that you're not allowed to use another service. We always say no to that clause. We say, hey, we're growing fast enough. If you don't feel comfortable giving us as much as we need, we're not going to sign with you unless you let us lend. So we stack like Shopify Capital on, or I don't know if Shopify Capital, we stack lenders on top of each other. And I think that's been a huge advantage of being bootstrapped and being profitable, where like if you weren't profitable or bootstrapped, you probably wouldn't be able to get this much money. So it's kind of funny how it works, though, because if if we would have raised money and not been profitable, we wouldn't have had access to all these types of debt. So being profitable actually allowed us to get money for free when non-profitable companies wouldn't. So if you can kind of get through that first little phase and maybe grow a little bit slower just to be profitable, you might be able to get so much debt financing future like us that allows you to then pick up the speed and really grow really fast. So yeah, that's been, you know, I I got a Carter. He was our, he was my CPA at the time and I started the business on my own. I don't have a co-founder. I was at the gym and I was like, man, I really need help. We're getting all these orders. I feel like I'm over my head. It was a one-man show. He said, hey, let me just come over and help. And I hired Carter as my first. uh, He's an equity partner as well now. He just being the expert in finance and being able to like use money and and understand the time value of money and stretch it has been a huge reason why we haven't been able to, we've been able to stay bootstrapped. That's amazing. Yeah. Cash management is, it sounds simple. But it's an incredible skill in business, uh, and that you know spans everything from payroll to inventory financing. It sounds like the strategy of stacking some of those debt or uh, revenue-based financing has been a positive thing for you guys over the years. And don't be afraid to uh, negotiate the rates. Like send them against each other. Like these these people put sticker prices out initially, and it, so many founders don't fight for it. Because if you look at even though it's you know, it's below the line. Uh, interest is below. It doesn't hurt your EBITDA. It still hurts your cash flow. So, like now, like we fight for every dollar because that could be a bonus for you know you as a founder, or it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars at the end of the year if you just fight for an extra half a percent or whatever. So, really, we really sharp. We make them sharpen our pencils. Amazing. And then little things like putting our logo as a like if people don't give us an extra. We may say, hey, you can't tell anyone you're, you, that you use us. We don't want it ever used. And we send them a, a legal document that says they can't use it. So especially if you're a growing business, like you provide a lot of bit value to these businesses for their growth and never forget that and own that. So just know who you are and, and then use that to get better rates. Yeah. Even just from the SaaS vendor side, like we in so many instances would negotiate a lower price on our you know, SaaS monthly fee if this growing brand that people recognize would be willing to give us their logo. So like totally, totally get that. And I think it works for both parties. So one of the big themes that obviously this show is about marketing that came up on Twitter when I told people that you were coming on is about marketing, right? So I think the first thing I want to talk about is influencer. It seems to be a big part of the brand and strategy these relationships, I don't know. I saw like recently Steph Curry's rocking cuts, right? Yeah, that's a cool story uh, I, I can share. That the most recent one. So influencers, I think before I get on that story, I think it's important to know it takes time 
And now we have Steph Crane that, you know, and, and all the guys, but actually Walker Bueller, who's behind me, he was, uh, he's a pitcher for the Dodgers. And we were like, all right, we can't get pros yet when back in 2016, 17. So I was like, let's focus on college guys and minor league baseball players. And we just picked the the top guys in AAA that haven't made a lot of money yet. And we would say, hey, we got a shirt with your name on, on it. We don't want anything. Just give us your address. And we never asked for anything. We just said, let the product speak for itself and then kind of built a relationship. And it took years to get to where we are now. Like if we would have went straight into the top guys, we'd have been doing that and running in circles forever. So now it's easy to look at cuts and be like, oh, you know, they have the perfect product, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it took one relationship at a time and then things blossomed. So Walker became a pro. All of a sudden now he's the cuts guy in the office and then all these guys are hitting us up. Then, you know, we go to we really hit it big in the bubble and we get a bunch of guys. And then that kind of, that took a lot of, uh, we got in a lot of locker rooms and in the off season, the guys go to different change teams. And then that becomes like our moat. And now we have like, we're in every locker room and Al said, we, we had everyone, no, no joke. You can name anyone in pro sports and they're where they've worn cuts outside of LeBron James and Steph Curry last week, we got Steph. Ah, so uh, amazing. <laughs> I guess the, the story behind that is we never sent it to him. I reached out to our athlete team. I was like, hey, do, do we know anyone from on Steph's team that we sent it to? We're like, no, he he runs a tight ship. And so I'm like, all right, look at Shopify, see if he ordered. We type in Shopify and sure enough, we see uh, him or his, his assistant ordered. And then we confirmed it because you know we were, we were able to see the address and the house was big online. We're like, yeah, it's for sure Steph's house. Yeah, it was cool. And then we're like, I was like, all right, check the the shirts that he's wearing on his vacation sure enough it was like four or five of our items and you know it's cool you know those guys get a lot of stuff sent to them for free they have their own brands and they still try to use us and i think that all is because we had good brand positioning early on where people feel like they're dressing up when they wear cuts we didn't sacrifice on price point even though early days we could have made a ton of money by lowering it just a little bit because we would have had we still would have been able to afford the the CAC at that period and probably could have scaled faster. We wanted to create like a affordable luxury brand that we were proud of and that long-term we felt could be sustainable. And so, uh, you know, there's, you know, a lot of, I don't even want to give him the, the name credit, but there's a lot of brands out there that kind of copy our, our brand, but they, what they always lose is they position it in the gym where they position it as a basics. We've always positioned cuts as a dress up work shirt and something you're really proud to put on, even though it's in a t-shirt category, it's, it's that elevated one. And so it's kind of hard to, from a marketing standpoint, to even tell that, how do, how do you explain that? I'm not even doing that good of a job now, but they see the brand. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's, if I were to recap this, it's, it starts with the product and the positioning of the product, right? And you as the founder, the founding team, whatever that looks like, need to believe, you know, wholeheartedly that this is a quality product. Mm -hmm. Then you started and said, hey, like, I'd love for some athletes or celebs to be representing the brand, but you didn't approach them like an influencer. You just reached out offering free product that you believed in. And now you fast forward, and I, I just heard you say this off the cuff, you have an athlete team. So mm -hmm. clearly, like that flywheel built on itself. And now, you know, this is a big enough part of your strategy to support how many people are on the athlete team? Around 10. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I would say athlete in amateur and seeding that team. And so 
it's not just pro athletes at college sports. Uh, it's kind of the whole the whole gamut. But our community teams are our biggest teams in, in, in all of cuts. Got it. And so is is this really like the, I don't know, technique or category within marketing where you are investing the most? That, like, I would say in community yeah. is kind of a big word, but communities consist of like our athlete teams, our uh, paid partner teams, like uh, people that, whether YouTubers or big time influencers that have like channels that are huge mom bloggers or fashion people that have millions of subscribers. We look at those like CNBC essentially, and you buy an ad on those platforms. But then we also have a huge team that's like the micro ambassadors. That's maybe our largest team. And and those, those people I feel like are the either super fans of cuts that have bought in 10 times or more and are just huge fans or people that want to get into influencer marketing but aren't a big person yet that can do a lot of deliverables for free product. Community, if we only did one of those, community wouldn't work. It's really a top-down, bottoms-up approach. You got to get the aspirational figures to rep your brand so it inspires the floor, the micros, to want to grow within your product and hopefully one day achieve that uh, level of uh, to become a paid partner. So it's kind of a, a 360 up and down plan that I think a lot of brands try to do one or the other. You really got to do them all at the same time and let them grow together. Because if it's too bottom or top heavy, the whole thing doesn't really work. Nice. So unboxing, I talk about that as a part of marketing, right? I'm excited to go through yours tomorrow. It sounds like you guys have just been very intentional with that experience like walk us through it yeah so originally and not every package has this but we we put each bag in a black bag with the SKU name really nice quality it's now uh, our new our new bags are all sustainable too they're they're biodegradable but we didn't sacrifice quality doing that and then a lot of times they come in a cinch bag where you can you know can be a lunch pail or it can be something you uh kind of zip up and you can put it as a mini backpack for a beach day a lot of traditional brands had a hang tag that you just kind of rip off and you, you could even damage the item we always said this doesn't make sense we're not in stores let's keep it nice and clean when you get it and so and something that's shareable that like you're, you're proud to take a photo of and so it's I think you'll be pleasantly surprised when you get it, that it just looks and, and feels really prestigious. And it's such a good marketing tool for us that, you know, the open rate of customer is 100% when they order something. So everyone has to look at that. We also have all share and you earn 10 bucks to the customer. So it's used as a referral program. We have depending on when you buy. If you're a first-time customer, you get one insert. If you're between orders two and three, you get another insert. If you're an outerwear client and you haven't bought t-shirts, you get a t-shirt insert and vice versa. So there's upsells and we try to link people to different products to try with little discounts, little offers. So uh, that's really driven repeat orders as well. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited to check it out. I'll report back for anyone that, that hasn't yet purchased a Cuts shirt or something like that. What about channels? You know, like you guys launched being, you know, the absolute best at the t-shirt, right? That was your first product. Do you remember when you were first getting onto social or even now, like, is there a single channel that you care about more? You know, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, where you're pouring more of the resources or are you trying to just get distribution everywhere? Yeah, I think this is the, the biggest marketing question in for 2022, where, you know, early on, it was mainly let's do Facebook and Google. Great. Google's been pretty steady. Facebook's CAC's obviously gone up with the iOS update. Uh, we were lucky with, 
I think it got about 30% worse, but at the same time, our AOV went up by 30%. So we were able to maintain scale with our AOV going up. So I think that's one por- par- portion to a lot of brands with product expansion. If you're thinking, all right, how do I maintain a higher capital? Sometimes you just need a higher AOV and that, you know, it take, it's the longest step to fix, like introducing new products can take years. But if you're methodical about it and you think ahead, like we did, it really served us well last year when the whole iOS thing came up. In terms of channels, we look at influencers, our number one channel by a long shot, especially with iOS and where we spend the most money. But TikTok is something that we were actually we, we run, this is a plug for Recast. Uh, we use Recast, which is a channel attribution software. And what I love about it is it talks about the time of attribution per channel. And like Facebook is like 48 hours. YouTube is like two weeks. TikTok is actually two weeks. And so, and I think a lot of brand owners, they want to quickly see attribution because they're so trained because of Facebook. It's like you spend money within two days, you see it. But that's not the case for some of these new emerging channels. So you got to have a little bit of blind faith and at, look at your results more on a on a bi-monthly basis or monthly basis. And then you'll really start to see where you can get scale. But I think if, you, if you're if you so focused on the daily results, you can miss the big picture. And we've definitely fallen into that when we first started testing big money on these other channels like YouTube and uh, TikTok. But I have a lot of YouTube shorts. Uh, we're seeing a lot of great in- integrations with our influencers that are really getting like, we had one of our partners get like 4 million views uh, yesterday and it had like 10,000 comments. And, you know, we didn't see results right away, but we think long-term that's going to be a, a great place of brand awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly even if it doesn't come right away, there's no harm in 10,000 comments about a video that that's featuring cuts. Have you tried TV? Yes, we've done TV. TV's worked like on macro channels. So we always run TV in Q4, really just October and November and the first 10 days of December. We were on one of the big bowl games in January as well, which did really well for, I think it was like the Fiesta Bowl or something. But uh, TV is very much like macro trends. So if there's high consumer uh, behavior, you can drive results. And I think Black Friday is a DDC or uh, a DDC event, or if uh, you run an anniversary sale, like we do ours in August, that's an event that you can drum up enough excitement. But TV, you, you really have to do it on macro events where there's like, top awareness to buy around Black Friday or, or holiday versus like in April when we've tested it, it really falls flat because there's not a really like direct reason why to buy. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the other kind of thread on this is that if you ramp up TV in Q4 and people check it out on their phone while they see the ad, and then you're kind of hitting them with retargeting ads, that's actually really smart. I hadn't thought about the seasonality of TV. I like that. One of the other things that I I definitely want to touch on, I know it's still pretty recent. So you start in t-shirts, you're building this brand, you expand first within men's into other products, and now women's apparel too, right? So like, let's talk about product expansion to the same customer. Like, how did you identify which products you wanted to launch next? And then you know, when did you start to build up that confidence about women as well? So one, we only did t-shirts 
in the early days because it was the only product that we knew how to make. We were a small team of, you know, guys that weren't fashion background. And we just, we really were careful with like wanting to be experts. And we are like, right now we can only be experts in one product. So I think before you can think product expansion, you have to look, be honest with yourself and say, can my team do this? Or is it just going to be a shit product expansion? We waited until we had the right people to do it. The second thing is, how did we go about figuring out what our next product was? Well, it kind of went back to that original story of we don't want to do a product just because our competitors do it or because this or that brand does it. We want to do it because it goes with our brand ethos of creating the world's first work leisure brand and operating the sport of business. And so naturally, our, our first one was like a work jogger where it became our number one product like overnight. And I think just the, every little detail about it where it's a jogger, but it doesn't look like a jogger from the front end. It, it kind of cuffs in the back. It's slender. You could wear it to a wedding almost in a, as a slack. It's it's just really true and true work leisure. And it's very much a product that you can operate in the sport of business. So we were very, it was very true to our brand. So when you're thinking about product expansion, don't look at your competitors. I mean, I, there's a business that I was uh, talking today that I mentor. They go with the hottest trend in the wind. And it's like, you're, wa- you're wasting so much money on product and now you can't do anything because you just went off to the nearest trend. Know who your customer is and think what do they need the most and then attack that. How many years after you did the tea, did you launch the jogger? Four and a half years, like only two years ago, did we launch anything else. So basically for the first four and a half years, you built this brand and customer base that just loved your teas. And then it's simply like understanding what's the right next move and making that product just as strong as your first. A, that's really hard to do. But if you're successful with it, like you're instantly going to be able to drive sales because of that, the sentiment that those customers have about your first product, which is amazing. And there's other headwinds that come when you do product expansion, like we didn't anticipate higher return rates for different products, your cash flow. Now, like your main product, like we struggle with this initially. We're like, we didn't have, we were like, got it so excited about joggers and stuff and the expansion. Now we have to pay for both. And t-shirts was on a shorter lead time joggers. It took much longer to, to make them. So now we didn't have, like the time value of cash became a harder equation. So even though sales, you may get sales from additional product line, it, it, it does affect the back end much more than you think. And if you don't have a team that is ready and understands that, you might get sales, but it might hurt the next thing. So the opportunity cost of adding more products is something that like we didn't anticipate. And it's definitely worth considering before. Amazing. And now six years in, you launch for women. Women. Our goal is to be a household billion dollar brand. And we said, we can't do that without women. And women, there's more women that graduate college now. You know, t-shirts work for women in the workforce. It's funny, we were uh, talking to uh, this investment guy that always checks in on us. Hey, you know, always trying to see if we're ready to run investment. And he's like, oh, I don't think t-shirts will work. Girls don't wear t-shirts in the office. And part of creating a brand is showing the market how to do it. Yeah. Girls, they're not going to wear sweats and t-shirt, but they might wear trousers or a little dress that you tuck the t-shirt in. And a lot of girls now are saying, wow, I didn't even know I could wear a t-shirt to work. I didn't know how to do it. Thanks for showing me. And now they they have similar behavior as, as, as men. So again, that just becomes, we knew our brand positioning and we knew our customer. And I, I think women's will be bigger than men's in a few short years, just because it has... They just, women shot more and it's actually a bigger need than men. Yeah, that's amazing. So are you taking a similar approach on on the women's products, like with 
influencers and, and community stuff? It's actually much easier because there's way more women influencers than guys. Guys is like, here's the difference. Women influencers look are looked upon as like a premier profession to, to be in. You can be a mom and an influencer in a great life. But guys, like, it's kind of looked down upon if you're like the pitch man saying, hey, check out my t-shirt. I'm a fashion guy. You know, it's not equal. And it's important to realize that like men for why you follow a man, you follow athletes, you follow big business people, you follow uh, inspiring traveling people. But if you're a fashion guy, that's not like something most guys like look to to follow. But in the women's space, it is. There's so many women influencers that inspire young girls all over the world. So we think our approach is even going to work when we're seeing it now is going to work much better for females. Do you run that as a separate business unit? Like, does it is there a GM of of women's or like, is that really just using the same infrastructure that you've already built out over the last six years? So we had a not a failed, but we, we launched into Canada, and we didn't build a separate team. We just said, oh, our current team can deal with the distribution center out there. We quickly realized we can't just add things to our business without actually building the back end as well. So because of that lesson, we. Like you mentioned, we have essentially a GM that is like the point man for all of the marketing on the product and on the marketing front. And then they have teams underneath them to attack women. It was actually one of our biggest investments for the last two years to kind of get that ready. So when we launch, it's not like the men's team is now doing this. I mean, you know, there's there's some overlap and it's not like we have two CFOs or anything, but uh, when you trickle down the organization, there's definitely two teams for that separated. Yeah, I mean, every every key initiative needs a single owner, right? Otherwise, totally. you know, whose responsibility is it and how are they, you know, prioritizing it? Um, so that's it's actually really cool to hear that you, you landed in that model based off of an earlier, not failure, but some challenges that you guys had. Two things before I let you go. CRO, you know, I don't want to get too into the, the tactics here, but I saw that you guys are doing a bunch of express checkout options, um, which makes a ton of sense. I don't know if this is controversial or not, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. I noticed shop pay is not listed there. Is that intentional? Uh, so we're, we're on Headler's uh, commerce right now. So we, we did have it. We have all alternate opinions in the office. It is very controversial. Okay, okay. We'll eventually do it, but our, because headless commerce and we're for layman's terms, we headless is built on top of Shopify. And so all apps that they have native to the platform, you have to build them custom. And so it's not as like it's yeah. plug in play as a Shopify app for us, like it is for some merchants. So we actually had it in the, the biggest worry of any uh, merchant is if the buy now button doesn't work, right? And so uh, it did affect that. So we're in the process of actually kind of working with Shopify and their dev team to work with our dev team to make one. And we're going to be like the potential uh, guinea pig for headless people. And so uh, I think we'll eventually onboard it. But uh, yeah, I'm 50-50 to see what, what would happen. I know a lot of people say it's great, but and then there's a lot of founders that are like, don't use it. you know. So well, what's your take on it? No, I, I noticed just as I was checking out, you know, I mean, I'm hugely biased. I'm in this business. I buy from a lot of Shopify stores. And I think for express checkout, that has become my go-to. I still think it's pretty quick to check out without it or or some of the others. So it's, it's not a big deal. But I was just curious because I know there is a lot of controversy around like, should you do it? Is it better than, you know, Apple Pay or some of these other ones? 
But yeah, I mean, what I've seen from other brand operators is you don't want to offer 10 of these things, right? That's overkill. But, you know, the top three or four should only help improve conversion rate. But I don't think you're losing customers as a result of it. I was just kind of curious what, what the story was there. But that makes sense on the headless front. Uh, I got great advice from uh, another founder or uh, older guy. He's like, sometimes it doesn't always make sense to be first, especially as your business gets more sizable. So like, if that becomes a huge market trend, you don't necessarily need to be first to get the benefits of it and, and work out the kinks. Uh, if you're third to it, like it's not going to be a huge competitive advantage lost if you're, if you, once it's really taken off of that, you join it. And I use Headless as an example. Uh, we were, you know, just getting started. It was a new technology and our head of development worked at a big agency and he's like, hey guys, this is going to be so much easier to do now than doing in two years from now because, you know, once you can become big, switching to headless can be a huge undertaking. And I think if we do it now, we can do it low cost and it can be really worth it. And we we're like, all right, we went for it. But, you know, we did it to have a better conversion rate on pages and single page application loading right away. And not to get to all the details of headless, but there's a lot of benefits that can increase your conversion rate. But what we didn't realize, there's definitely going to be kinks. And our first month actually had a worse conversion rate. And there was an opportunity cost of being first. And we didn't realize with Shopify apps, all these apps, we had to build custom now. And so uh, even with uh, Attentive, and there were some issues that we had to work through with them. And they were great. They, they were like, we're, we're figuring this out. But you know, a lot of times in business, the effort to be first is not understood of like what risk you are taking. You only look at the, the, the end benefit. And we've definitely been a humbled, so to speak, of wanting to be first and paid the price. I think it's really refreshing to hear that perspective on headless. I think there's a lot of benefits. I think it comes with a lot of unforeseen challenges and and actually uh, hearing that your conversion rate at least first went down before it, it went up. I, I think it's not a no-brainer decision. And yeah, I like that approach of of evaluating new technology. Wait for things to get tested. I mean, you you hear this all the time. There's so many no brainers out there that like now I'm like, well, it, you know, let's see. You yeah, know. <laughs> absolutely. Nothing's really enough. Absolutely. All right, awesome. I've got one one more. Obviously, here with Stephen Borelli, founder and CEO of Cuts. What is the single biggest mistake you've made scaling this business? Well, I would say the one I, I didn't make, but I almost did was give away 30% of my company for 100K. That would have been by far the worst mistake I made. Thank God my professor said no. I would say from a leadership standpoint, trying to have my cake and eat it too. Early on, we tried to bring in this top exec. You know, we were probably over $20 million in business, like rather quickly. And I was like, all right, let me let me hire someone. I don't want to lead the team anymore. Um, I want someone to do that so I can just focus on product development and community. And what I quickly realized was like, especially as a startup, the founder oftentimes like knows just things that you don't even give yourself credit for. When you bring someone at the top that now is responsible for carrying out all those little things, more times than not, they're not prepared, even though they have all this experience to do the job that you do. And so I had to learn the hard way, a lot of money costs, big salaries, guaranteed bonuses that I had to pay out with the firing. And it just cost us a lot of money from doing that. And really that was me not wanting to just continue to to lead in a way that, because it, it becomes an enormous amount of work and a lot of direct reports and you know, you're having to work harder and harder as the team gets bigger. And so I think that was something that I, I learned where 
my leadership and my leadership capabilities need, I need to get better because no one knows the business like me. And if I can get better and deploy it, it's, it's going to be better than anyone that I can hire. And so I think it's easy to think there's always someone to hire that can do it better. As a founder, you're always trying to relieve responsibilities from yourself. And, and, and not to say Cuts hasn't hired senior level people. I would say when we tried to hire the senior level person that was like a generalist that was going to lead kind of like what I do, it was a disaster. So if you're going to hire a senior level person, I think what you said earlier on was true. Make sure they're an expert in like one or two things and then they lead that team. Don't try to hire an expert that's like a generalist because that that's just not going to work at, for a startup. That needs to be you. Amazing. Well, this has just been full of gold. I really, really appreciate you coming on, Stephen. Huge fan and just blown away at the business you've built and, and the brand as well. So congrats on everything and thanks for coming on the show. Love it. And I love Attentive Improvement. We use them all day, every day. So I love it. I'll, I'll, I'll throw that plug in there. Awesome. 